Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So, without further ado, Nathan Duell has recently moved to L.A. from Beirut with his wife and daughter. He's received an MFA from the University of Tampa and a B.A. in Literature from Brown University. Previously, he was an editor at Rolling Stone and The Village Voice, and he has contributed essays, fiction, and criticism to The New York Times, Financial Times, GQ, uh, The Paris Review, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and many other publications. Here he is to discuss his new book, Friday Was the Bomb, Five Years in the Middle East. Hey everybody, thanks for coming. Um, so my first time reading, um, I read in Baltimore last month for the book, but this is like kind of the first really official reading like in a bookstore with the book actually out. So I'm incredibly excited and I'm really grateful for y'all for coming. Um, yeah, so I'm new to Los Angeles. It's still kind of crazy to be here, uh, kind of crazy to be in America in general. I took the bus here. We, we live in Venice and you know, I took like the 33 to the 204 or something. It took like two hours, but it was um, totally beautiful and outstanding. You know, just everyone following rules and all these different strange people like agreeing to be together in a small space. Um, I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, so the book, the book is about five years we spent in the Middle East, and um, the first, um, the first place we lived was Saudi Arabia, um, which is a very unusual country. Um, you know, for many years to visit, um, you basically had to be a pilgrim going to uh, to uh, re religious pilgrimage in Mecca, um, and they would issue journalist visas for very short amounts of time, and they're usually a minder of some sort, and just for a variety of strange, happy accidents, uh, Kelly and I were able to essentially move there in 2008. And it was a really strange place to live. Um, it became quite stranger when we had a child there. Um, so this essay, I'm going to read two things tonight. This is a really short one. Uh, I know no one in the history of the world has ever like been to a reading and been like, oh, I sure hope they read a lot longer. So you know, I'll, I'll be gentle to you guys. So this piece is called uh, The Chest of the Horse. For several months before we left Saudi Arabia, I dodged phone calls from our new landlord, avoiding an invitation to his farm in the no remote north of Riyadh. Why was I afraid? In part, I couldn't get excited about taking our newborn deep into the desert. But at a certain point, to decline his invitation would be too much disrespect. It was a mild day, perfect for a little trip. Kelly and I loaded up our rented Toyota. We carried blankets and plush toys and water and food. And with our daughter Loretta asleep in her car seat, we drove north. The miles clicked by and I scanned the road for a sign in Arabic reading, Exit 4. It wasn't clear how far we'd need to go, and with the brown earth stretching endlessly, the gas meter sinking, 
and the sound of our tires slapping against the pavement, I fought off a mounting feeling of dread by telling Kelly what I knew of our host. I come to know Muhammad gradually, first as we negotiated the rental price for the 1980s unit in central Riyadh, which was dark but roomy and situated in a deeply conservative neighborhood where everyone hid from each other. Then he and I spent an afternoon together on an appliance purchase and on an appliance purchasing trip, arguing over whether to buy a gas or an electric stove. In a gesture that made me swell with pride, an actual Saudi was inviting me to hang out. He later asked me to his, his family's istriha, a sort of meeting house. When we got there, however, the place was cold and empty. He showed me vast rooms that on other occasions might have been filled with family and festivity. Tonight, it was just us. He took two plastic chairs outside. We sat by a dark pool, and I shivered in the cold wind. You know any good jokes, he said. He told me how his old Romanian friend knew lots of good, dirty jokes. Wink, wink. And that he could reliably get bottles of booze from him, from his embassy. We sipped warm Pepsi. Muhammad lit a new marble light off his expiring marble light. Walking me to my car, he told me that he had been born in 1963, one of 12 sons of an upper-class family. He'd attended junior high in Los Angeles while his father was studying in America. After graduating from a Saudi high school himself, he began working for Sabek, the sprawling Saudi petroleum and plastics company. He started in the warehouse, rose steadily through the ranks, and eventually was sent by the company to study at Boston University. Upon Muhammad's return, he did well enough that he could retire in his 40s and move his wife and his children from the dark apartment where we now lived into a Riyadh mini-mansion. He patted the top of my car, telling me he also had a farm in the desert. You should visit, he said. It will be nice. Exit four looped up and over a bridge. I could see nothing except the undulating hills of sand. Kelly asked if we were close. I pulled over, and in the distance, we could see the faint outline of a Toyota pickup, a jihadi mobile, as people called them. It sped toward us, kicking up an afterburn of fine sand. Then my phone rang. I picked it up. Is it you, Muhammad purred? Follow me. Soon the asphalt broke apart and it was just dirt. Our tiny sedan bounced over rocks and slammed into ruts. Loretta stirred, yawning. When we had first met to negotiate rent for the apartment, Muhammad whipped out a giant cell phone to show me grainy photos of the new dream house. Just that he'd finished erecting the farm, he explained, a flash flood had struck. I saw in several snapshots that a great river of mud had knocked over palms, threaded fissures into retaining walls, and filled his pool with brown slurry. You'll see when you visit, he had said. You'll love my castle. We rounded the bend, and it came into focus, a three-story, sand-colored house with a moat, scalloped walls, and acres of desert. We parked on an insanely steep driveway that had probably made more sense on paper. I slowly picked up Loretta, who was still asleep in her car seat, and I laid her beside a plastic table on his concrete patio. I put another blanket over her, and Muhammad encouraged us to get comfortable. He took long drags on a five-foot shisha. He drank a homemade concoction of dark purple hooch and motioned to a stack of cups, inviting us to join him. From his laconic movements, I could tell it wasn't his first class. There wasn't another human being for miles. We admired the view, and Muhammad began explaining how there had been a battle centuries ago right on the spot where we were sitting. Just after the prophet's time, he said, the people had been outnumbered, but the tribe's fiercest warriors did not hesitate. He rode his beast directly into the enemy. 
Spears pierced his steed, Muhammad told us, but the leader pushed on. I call my land the... Muhammad paused, frustrated. You know, it's the horse, the, the breast of the horse. He pointed to his chest. The chest of the horse, I said? Yes, yes, that's it. I winced, thinking of a struggling animal riddled by sharp points. Then Muhammad brightened, pulled out his wallet, and laid a well-worn ID card on the table. Kelly picked it up. Nice mustache, he said. It was a Muhammad's Boston University ID, dated 1984 to 1985. His kids sometimes wanted to play with it, Muhammad said, but wary of the card fraying, he wouldn't let them anymore. I hate this fucking country, he said, sitting back in his chair. Lately, he confided it was his kids that caused him the most angst. He was happily married, he said, but his wife's brothers were more conservative than Muhammad. They take my kids and they enroll them in summer school, he said. When they come back, they talk like little bin Ladens. It's, bull it's bullshit. Loretta began to cry. Kelly needed to breastfeed and asked if there was room inside. Yes, yes, of course, Muhammad said, leading us through the kitchen where the box for a fridge was still in a corner. Space for a stove was empty and raw. In a front room were windows covered with blackout tape. Kelly sat on a red carpet with our child. You'll be okay, I said to her. Sure, she said slowly. Why don't you go outside? I couldn't make out the expression on her face. I climbed into Muhammad's truck and we drove at an astonishing speed, bouncing over gullies and racing around corners. I was surprised to see Muhammad was actually farming the land. Rows of palms stood beside a 30-foot plot of peppers, spring onions, and eggplants. Your wife and kids ever come here, I said. Muhammad shook his head. He was concentrating on driving through a moonscape of rock and fossilized sea creatures. When did Columbus discover America, he said, growing serious as he punched the gas, waiting for my answer. In 1492, I said reflexively, nearly in sing-song, wondering how far we were going. This place is much older than that, he said. He tapped the steering wheel and we jerked to a stop suddenly. In the middle of this blank desert were the remains of an ancient village. Sand and mud walls stretched some 20 feet high. It was exhilarating to find the remains of a three-story guard tower. I fingered the rough walls. The constant assault of time and wind had revealed the stones that made the wall strong. It was rare to find anything so old in a country like Saudi Arabia. Anything that did not glorify Islam or signal the country's emergence as a modern state was often destroyed. Muhammad offered to take photos of me and his old stuff, but the offer felt obligatory. He looked at his watch ready to go. I imagined how easily he, or his brother-in-law, could demolish all this. Back at the house, we found Kelly sitting alone. Loretta was inside, sleeping. She gave me a look, and I told Muhammad we'd probably need to leave pretty soon. Stay as long as you want, he said. I'm not going to kidnap you. <laughs> he went for another cup of the homemade hooch. Take some, he said, filling a tall cup. No thanks, Kelly said. Muhammad sat back in his chair and sighed. The fire had gone out, and he jumped up to get it going. Once the fire roared, he took some pieces of marinated chicken from a foil packet. The meat sizzled on a wire rack, and Muhammad plucked out a piece of burning coal with a piece of tweezers. Next time, you must bring your friends, he said. He tossed the coal back into the fire. The sun was going down, and it was cold. We ate some of his food. I want to show you something, he said. I followed him inside, happy to be up and moving about. We snaked through empty rooms, a barrel bulb little hallway that led to a set of stairs. I saw Muhammad take quick steps, and I followed. Down a dark hallway, there was a room brightened only by the light of the moon. In the corner was a tall closet, and I watched as he reached up, 
reached up, searching for something. When he turned around, he was holding a small gray pistol. My heart raced as he began to pace the room, turning his arm one way and then the other. Downstairs, he had seemed slow-moving or sad, but now his body had this quickness to it that broadcast strength and resolve. Then he stopped, holding the gun, and I didn't like the tightness of the grip or his finger's position on the trigger. You can put it back, I said. I I've seen it. You don't need to show me anything more. Don't worry, he said, leveling the pistol at the window, the metal shining in the moonlight. It's not loaded. I just want to show it to you. I braced myself, waiting for the blast, the shattering of glass, my wife's scream, our daughter's cry. Muhammad turned to me and smiled. Suddenly he started stealing back downstairs, the white fabric of his long, flowing thobe swishing as he raced toward my wife. She hates guns, I said, dashing after him. Please don't do this. I heard him say, if in a trance, this is my Spanish pistol. How nice, Kelly said, holding Loretta. She smiled through clenched teeth. Out of breath, I gave her a wild look, deciding the best thing I could do was to take my landlord's arm and steer him away. It's not loaded, he said to me quietly, as we walked together out into the desert night. He pulled the trigger over and over, the dry click echoing over the sand and under the moon. Nothing will happen tonight, he said. Thanks. <laughs> <There's> more. <laughs> Thanks. It's very kind of you. You don't need to like clap in the middle. Because um, there's more. Um, so after Saudi Arabia, which was weird and crazy and just filled with amazing experiences, like every time we walked out the door, and Neil was a colleague of mine then, and you know, just to be in the Middle East then was just so intoxicating and crazy and it was so fun. And, and my dad got sick, and it was kind of clear he was dying, and, and then Kelly got, my wife gets this job in Baghdad, and it's like, fuck, you know, my dad's dead. You know, we got this kid. Kelly's got to go to Baghdad. I guess I'll go to Istanbul with her daughter. You know, maybe we should have gone to New York. I mean, all these decisions were made, and, and then we lived with them, and I can't probably read to you anything from Istanbul, because I'll just cry. It was a really hard time, kind of crazy pieces. Um, but after this strange time of being apart so much, and Kelly being in Iraq, and me being in Istanbul, we get this great gig. We're going to move to Beirut. We're all going to be together. And, uh, and in many ways, it was really good. And uh, seeking to sort of upend some impressions about Beirut, I um, got an assignment to uh, write a story about a normal day in my hometown. And uh, things did not go as planned. This piece is called Homeland in My Homeland, and I uh, hope you like it. Because I called Beirut home, and because an American TV show called Homeland won a bunch of awards depicting my home, and because this depiction focused on Hamra Street, which I crossed a dozen times a day en route to my butcher, baker, gym, my child school, and the cafe where I write, and because this depiction was ham-handed enough to have enraged the Minister of Tourism, who was spending millions attempting to lure tourists back to a beautiful and tragic city, and on top of all that, because this show was an originally an Israeli TV pilot, an agonizing fact for a country and people still technically at war with that Israel, and as if that weren't bad enough, because the purported Beirut scenery was also shot on location in the Israeli towns of Tel Aviv and Haifa, I decided one Friday to describe a typical day on Hamra Street, which turned out to be much more like an episode of the TV show Homeland than I ever could have imagined. I normally walk my three-year-old to school, but this Friday she wakes with a fever for the third day in a row. So instead, I take her to the doctor. 
I call Hussein, who arrives in a lightly armored Mercedes. Loretta's pissed because she's not going to class, so she squirms and she kicks my seat. I beg her to sit still and look out the window. We pass the Saudi embassy, where 200 people stand baking in the sun, waiting for their visas, which they need in order to complete Hajj, the annual pilgrimage that all Muslims are compelled to complete at least once. To prevent corruption, the Saudis annually give each country a number of Hajj visas proportional to each nation's Muslim population. So pretty much anyone standing in line on a sizzling October and Friday 2012 has won a spot in that lottery. Spots are offered randomly and with shockingly little corruption, so the people in line are a motley and diverse mix. Not my neighborhood's typical crowd of college kids, sad old rich men, and businessmen with their trophy wives. There's hardcore Bedouin guys in dirty robes and checkered headdresses alongside wide packs of women wearing black abayas. The lines pulse against metal barriers, and soldiers with guns stand beside an armored personnel carrier nearby. And nearby, a series of giant asterisk-shaped iron ties installed on the road prevent anyone from parking close enough to detonate a booby-trapped car. We arrive at the hospital, which is affiliated with Johns Hopkins. The doctor frowns, telling me that my daughter Loretta has been sick so long that we need blood work and a urine culture. At the lab, <clears throat> I hold my daughter in my arms, and she shudders. Daddy, it hurts, she says, and I apply pressure to the needle's entry point. Back at home, the babysitter arrives. Loretta naps, and I throw on a light cotton shirt for the walk downtown, where I'll meet a friend for lunch. The path takes me the entire length of Hamra. I pass the shuttered Applebee's, which will reopen elsewhere, my liquor store, which lately stocks Maker's Mark, the post office, where I'm sad not to, not to discover the book I need to review, but happy enough to find the last two issues of The New Yorker, and the local headquarters of the Syrian Socialist National Party, or SSMP, which is aligned with the Syrian regime. In an alley, I spot a guy with a series of snakes and barbed wire tattooed to his arms and neck. He's making coffee on a machine set into the back of a busted-up minivan on blocks. He glares at me, and I see in his eyes a guy who would happily beat me to death. Posters of what I assume are martyrs have been pasted to surrounding walls, and the swastika-looking flag of the SSMP is sagging from poles bolted to the walls of nearby buildings. Downtown, which had been rubble until five years ago when it was recast as a luxury mall, my friend Mike and I share lunch of Lebanese salads and a tureen of hummus. Mike's wife will give birth to their son at the end of the month, and they've tried to meet every member of the hospital staff, imploring them not to give her any drugs during the delivery. Reviewing the plan, Mike's wife asked him, are you sure you can watch me writhe in pain? Mike admits he's not sure. I tell him about how our daughter had been born in Riyadh and that we'd fought there to have a natural birth. Mike and I talk about all the people we know who have died last winter and this spring, Marie and Anthony and a French photographer named Remy and our mutual friend John, amongst others. I tell Mike I thought about not coming back this summer, staying in America forever, and I take a bite out of hummus and bemoan how dark and unnatural it is to live voluntarily beside the miasma of death and destruction that is Syria. I realize that for those who watch a show like Homeland, Beirut must seem as dark as it does to us equally as unnatural. And some of that is indeed rooted in reality, in the persistent echo of years-old news stories. In a taxi on the way back to Hamra, I pass the site of the massive car bomb that killed the prime minister in 2005. The driver takes a shortcut, and I see the Hilton Hotel Tower, owned by Kuwaiti royalty, ruined in skirmishes during Lebanon's 15-year civil war. There are trees growing from suites on the upper floors. But on first glance, the view along most of the streets around here look a lot like Queens, New York. 
Likewise, on first glance, you might conclude Homeland is a reasonably nuanced portrait of the war on terror, whatever that is. It's a portrait anyway. The second season brought the action to Beirut, where CIA agents were made to grapple with a neighborhood that was hilariously, to people who live there, crawling with snipers and warlords. The scene that allegedly depicted Hammer Street, where you'll find two busy lanes of traffic at all times, cutting through a series of thriving restaurants and nightclubs, a Crown Plaza hotel, and a new H&M clothing store showed a narrow alley lined with sandbags and desert people, everyone waiting to be shot at. On those same blocks in real life, on the day I want to show you all how nice Beirut is, I stop at Cafe Yunus in the center of Hamra, where most afternoons I crack open a laptop for a few hours and I nurse a French press. The syrupy voice of Lebanese singer Fayrouz bleeds from the cafe's speakers, and every table is packed with students and reporters and silver-haired amateur philosophers and Syrian activists and grizzled NGO workers. Next door is an art gallery. Hanging from a pole in front is an arty jumble of rebar, Bits of concrete sticking to the metal, the whole thing lit up by fairy lights. A fan above spins lazily. At 3 p.m., the power goes out, and no one notices. You can literally set your watch by the outages here. Now, it's easy to assume Homeland didn't bother to send any scouts to Beirut. The tickets are expensive. It's just as easy to poke fun at their solution, send a bunch of actors to Israel. But don't we accept this a fiction, and haven't we always? You make choices, you build a space, you choose your details. And whatever you build, whether on the page or on the screen, it's never complete. That's not Beirut, you can say. But what makes Homeland's portrayal downright silly is the incongruity between the Beirut in the show and the Beirut in which I'm raising my daughter. As if on cue, reality and fiction converge. The power flickers on and my Twitter feed loads. A car bomb has just exploded across town. My phone won't dial out. I spill hot coffee on my foot. I feel punched in the face. The explosion wasn't far from where I had lunch. And I flash to Mike, his wife, their unborn child. I watch a girl sip a strawberry smoothie, a boy bought into a sandwich, and an old man struggle to plug in a new iPhone. A sexy lady is smoking gitans by the window, and her handsome boyfriend lights a Marlboro. I scramble across the news updates on an internet that barely functions, trying to figure out what's going on. And the cafe, owner, cafe owner's daughter leans on a car outside, smoothing her curly hair. Emails start flying around. Can you get to the street by car? Phones aren't working. A photo, it looks small. No injuries. Then another photo. Lots of damage. One dead. You got to use Blackberry Messenger to get through. It's two dead. Two? Only two? No, it's a dozen wounded. Security sources are still confirming. No, there's definitely many more dead. More than 100 wounded. There's a giant crater. In the rush of information, time slows down, and I take in the event as if I'm watching a drama on TV. But this action is taking place just three miles from where I'm sitting peacefully in my favorite cafe. The waiter brings more coffee, a scooter squirts by, roaring up Harmer Street, making its little burping sounds. A man and woman embrace on a couch, that girl I've seen around, probably a freshman at the local design college. She's wearing a blue feather in her hair, and there are pink caps on the tips of her little leather Oxfords. She's upset about something, not the bomb. She takes a seat and she scribbles in a notebook, holding back tears. I make the mistake of looking at some grisly photos from the bomb site. I still have not heard from Mike. Cars are mangled and several firefighters stand in the smoking rack that was once someone's apartment. The death toll is now eight in some reports, three in others. In one shot, a woman covered in blood is fainting. In another photo, I see what looks like the brains of a 10-year-old girl. An alert pops up on my phone, a reminder that Loretta's swim lesson is tomorrow at 4.30 p.m. If my life were a TV show, this might be the moment I have some kind of epiphany. 
Instead, heading home from the cafe, I stop for wine, and I stop for whiskey, and I pass a young boy with dirty fingernails flipping through a gun catalog. Tofu is back in stock at the health store, and I am happy, and the phones work again. Then Mike calls. I just wanted to let you know we're okay, he says. There's an American tourist in Wrangler jeans looking up, 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 guidebook in her hand, and I get a good look at her long white throat. A man in front of his clothing boutique argues about the cut of a shelf in his remodeled front window. Back at home, trying to remain calm, Kelly and I invite our friend Richard and his daughter to come by. His wife is on assignment in Libya, and none of us want to be alone. I offer to stir up a round of Manhattans. Richard, who is from Wales, says he's never had one. I mix the drinks, and we stare at our phones, seeking more information about our lives. And as it comes, our little girls run around, cutting things with scissors. It turns out one of the country's top intelligence chiefs is among the dead. We brace ourselves for the additional ugliness that is sure to come, and into each drink, I carefully spoon a bright red cherry. I hand Richard his Manhattan, and he says he feels like a character in the show Mad Men. I feel the sting of the Hollywood comparison. He takes a sip, and I wait for his reaction. You Americans like everything so sweet, he says. Later, I walk outside toward Hammer Street, an American in Beirut heading to an ATM for some extra money, just to be on the safe side. My life is not a TV show. The streets are eerily quiet. If someone in Hollywood had written this, my character would do something brave, or something stupid, or maybe he'd be killed. In the faint light of a street lamp, a family of three is walking toward me, and they're all licking ice cream guns. Thank you. Do questions or something? Yeah. yeah. Does anyone have any questions? Hi. You want to ask me anything? <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> yeah, sure, sir. What's your, what's your name? Alan. Nice to meet you. Richard. Thank you for coming. Stan, thanks. I enjoyed it. I just recently went back to LA too, so I appreciate what you said back to you. I appreciate it. Um, but it wasn't clear to me on the latter thing that you wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Is it or is that is it or is that not published? Yeah, yeah. It was published by GQ, and then it's also in the book. Okay. Yeah. In that same same book. Yeah, in this book. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's right. I'm a little deaf. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. My apologies for not explaining. No, yeah. Well, I, yeah. I am deaf. I <laughs> My apologies. I missed some of it. Yeah. So it wasn't clear to me. Also, you like names off like five or six friends. Just yeah. before the bomb sequence, right. if you will. Sure. Uh, like, but it wasn't clear to me there was any violence that had happened prior. And how did these people, uh, that was not at all clear. Yeah, so we're, we're talking. Um, how did these people die? Yeah, we're talking the winter, the winter and spring of uh, 2011 and 2012 <coughs> when the Syrian uprising sort of went from some guys sort of showing their chests and protesting to it becoming in, more, more in Syria, next door, uh -huh. um, which is what uh, my wife was covering right. most of the time and what a lot of her colleagues and people I've met at bars, you know, I can't really call them colleagues, but um, people I met at bars would, would, you know, get smuggled by rebels across the border and they'd be in situations that were quite dangerous and we lost some of them. Um, because either they were in a safe house, like in Marie Colvin's case, she was in a safe house that was, um, you know, hit by an explosive device, and she didn't make it. 
um, or Anthony Shadid, you know, the sort of celebrated New York Times correspondent. He had asthma, and uh, it, it's you know really quite simple what happened to him. Simple and tragic. He was uh, coming back overland on the back of a, a either a donkey or a horse, I forget which, and the the dander of the animal made his asthma work up. And I think he was actually in Turkey at the time, but he he had a cardiac arrest, and they couldn't couldn't save him. So I mean, the, the deaths I'm referring to in those piece, it was a really you know, really, bru it, 2012 was the most dangerous year for journalists on record. Um, a lar largely, um, you know, Syrians, but but also uh, Westerners and other Arabs covering sort of the uh, the great convulsions of the Middle East in 2011 and 2012. Right. Well, I was aware, you know, like that. The, the, yeah. The, the violence infiltrated back into Beirut, but not with any kind of consistency. So that's why I was. Yeah. Tim. Hi. Um, you said the stuff about Homeland and stuff. Are there any TV shows or movies that do actually like capture these things to any measure to which? Yeah, I'm, I'm generally really super weak in the cinematic arts, I, I confess. Like, when, when, uh, when in doubt, I'm always like ha happier to read something than watching something. Um, but I was asked this question in, a, in an interview recently. And uh, you know, I, f I think um, it took me years to start watching, caring about like watching movies about Southeast Asia, which is like the first place I ever lived abroad. And I really love the Year of Living Dangerously, which is sort of like I don't know if you guys know it. It's it's an old Mel Gibson film about um, the 1965 coup in Indonesia, and it's kind of brilliant. And I just now I can't wait to watch it with Kelly. There's some movie that's set in that hotel I mentioned with the trees growing out of the top. It's like a 1983 French film about the Battle of the Hotels. And uh, yeah, I, I, everyone's different, but like I, my, my, my move is never like, oh, there's this interesting thing happening. What do the guys in Hollywood think about this? You know, it's just not my, no. But years later, I'm feeling nostalgic. I feel like movies are better with a little remove, but what do I know? Yeah. But to, to, to answer your question in a slightly different way, sir, um, a lot of these pieces were written kind of like in the middle of things happening. Um, so um, a lot of them, it ends up, I hope, maybe coalescing as a book, but a lot of them are written like as these kind of crazy things are happening to us. So prior, you would understand that. Sorry, what? Prior to reading the chapter or essay, if you will, before that, you would understand. I think so. Have more of a grasp of who these people are. I hope so, yeah. 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 Neil. Yeah, I mean Saudi was just mind blowing. You know, I mean it's just it's it's like uh, it's like going to the moon in, in many ways. The the, the 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 terrain, especially Riyadh. We were in the capital. It's it's at like I think three thousand feet, it's a thousand meters. Yeah, so it's pretty high desert. Um, it's really bleak, very windswept. It gets very hot in the summer and very cold in the winter, and. The, there's no public life of any kind, really. Like, the only things that matter are religion, which gets practiced in the mosque, into which I could not go, because I am not a, a believer. Um, family, you know, a lot of the, sort of the, the, the interactions 
uh, it happens behind the, the 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 towering walls of the sort of the family compound. So, um, you know, as, as a as a young woman, you you really can't you can't really be in the same room as your like your adult male cousins. You know, so so even within those walls, there are highly scripted places where people can be together. Um, and then sort of the th the third thing you're allowed to do is like shop. So I mean. There's a tremendous amount of time just spent wandering malls, and maybe you guys have heard Marketplace has done some great stories about this, and you know a variety of people have. But all the little coded rituals of like dating in Saudi Arabia, like you know guys will tuck their um, their BlackBerry Messenger code name into their like head head headdress, you know. So it's like you know sexy chic two three four or whatever and so like got, girls will see it and and you know and he'll just see like her eyes or whatever and that's that's sort of like so for us to be this these sort of intrepid young reporters i guess you could maybe call us that trying to trying to get to know this place it was tremendously difficult you know um and i, I think kelly my wife had a had a you know, sort of this magical card, which was her, her just sort of like unrepentant blondness. She would just sort of glide through the country like in her black robe with, without her hair covered, be like, hello, I am blonde. What do you have in mind? You know? <laughs> um, but then once we had a kid, that sort of unlocked amazing thing. Like when Kelly was visibly pregnant, you know, that family is so important there and it was just such a way to break the ice. You know, even some guys like kind of secretly I would love to kind of chop your head off. I mean, not really, that's exaggerating, but oh, I can see you value family as well. We have this thing to talk about. Why don't you come over? Um, and then once we actually had our little butterball, I mean, it was just wonderful. You know, I could, I could share these sort of meaningful moments with people. It would disarm situations in a way that was really helpful. Does that make any sense, Neil? <laughs> and then Turkey was completely different, you know, because I went there largely as like a single dad a lot of the time, because Kelly would be in Iraq for 60 days at a time. So I'd be alone with our like one-year-old for 60 days at a time. Um, and during those 60 days, I'd like go out in the middle of the day with this one-year-old, and we made the, if we probably should have moved to the burbs. Which is which is where like because uh, there's kind of like two kinds of expats in Istanbul. There's like young, crazy, like let's go to the bars expats, and then there's like I'm 62 and I've got a high school kid expats, and we definitely still kind of thought we were the bar people when in fact we actually were 62 years old in some ways. Um, so where we lived, there wasn't like an easy way for me to find a park or play dates. So I'm sort of this like still a youngish guy toddling around with this little person I don't quite know how to take care of. And it, w it became quite clear to me that people, Turkish people, would sort of look at me, and they didn't exactly say this, but it was sort of like, we're so sorry your wife is dead. And, and her mother, and your mother. They're, we're so sorry they're all dead. Because that's the only possible explanation for the fact that you, strapping young man, are in the middle of the day involved in your child's diapers and whatever else. Like, we're so sorry for your loss. You're a loser, dude. So, I mean, the Turkey was a very odd, like, in a former childless life, I would have swashbuckled my way across that city and country and just producing reams of interesting stories, and instead I'm like, playdate, how do I make it happen? And I didn't, you know, I was sort of a failure in many ways in that respect. And 
And then Lebanon, which is like party town, uh, global world. I'm party, Lebanon, Beirut. Get yourself some Beirut. It's the best place ever. It's so fun, so crazy, such a spirit. You know, it's. I love it. I would. I would. I'd go back tomorrow. Um, and it was a lovely place to have a kid, because um, it just so happened that all, like all the other correspondents were almost all of them were women, and so uh, suddenly I went from being utterly and completely alone to being like a member of this like husbands club, because they were like. The New York Times, you know, um, yeah, I don't need to name them, but like you, you can imagine all those people. They're all women, and a lot of them have kids, and we're all hanging out with them. And so suddenly, I kind of had this community of like husbands, but for reasons I'm still trying to figure out, and I've, maybe I get it at the book, I couldn't do it anymore. Just all the sort of like mental gymnastics and emotional uh, sort of tricks. Or hell, maybe there's something wrong with me. I don't know. But like, I living next to Syria, as things started to boil over, I just couldn't be there anymore, and I just was tired and sad and needed to go. Yeah. Should I stop talking? <laughs> Does anyone else want to know? Oh, yeah, you. What's your name? Uh, William. William. Nice uh, to meet you, William. Uh, I, I know earlier when you were talking about like you went to Beirut because you were searching for uh, another truth versus either the Hollywood uh, story or the stories that would appear in other publications. And I, I'm curious, uh, and, and I'm sorry that this is a very petty and pretentious question, but as far as uh, your relationship to the truth, like your choice in details and what you're choosing, what are you looking for, how are you crafting the truth and how are you finding that? Like, what in your work brings truth? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. It gets to like the heart of what I'm about, you know. Um, and I, I, I definitely have like fellow writer friends, magazine editors who think I'm largely full of shit, you know, because like, they're like all about like data or you know the truth as as adjudicated by different matrices. But like I'm, you know, from like the. Uh, the sort of Joan Didion school or like the uh, more recently the John Jeremiah Sullivan school or like Leslie Jameson where it's like this like accumulation of things I see that make me feel and so I'm trying to I'm not necessarily trying to like get some get to some like unassailable theory that like Nate Silver will be really psyched about you know the data journalist for the New York Times I'm like you know I, I, I find it very exhilarating for myself to like move through the world and take the time to like see the things I see and to make them add up to something because I find that personally very valuable and I, I've been led to believe that perhaps the, the, the way I put them together adds up to something as well. So I mean, in the simplest sense, and this, this sounds a little basic, I guess, but just, the, just this, the basic gesture of like taking the time to do that I think is something important and beautiful. And how, and now that you've had these, I mean, you said you were writing these as you were traveling, like, I don't know if you've gone back and revised it specifically for this publication, uh, but how has your relationship to the truth changed as time has gone? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I admire your, like, uh, 
uh, tenacity with this truth word. I, li- I like that truth word. That's a good. It's a good one. What, what does it mean? I don't know. It means a couple things, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, there's nothing in this book that didn't get uh, revised pretty substantially, um, and some, some of it I wrote just for the book. You know, I mean, there, there's a, there's a big, a big piece, a couple of big pieces that I wrote just for it, pushed by an editor I'm very um, lucky to have had. Um, but right now, literally today, I was uh, d- doing some final touches on a rewrite of the final essay as pushed by yet another editor. It's going to run as an excerpt in a magazine. And that editor is like, you know what? The, 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 the part of this I find the most interesting is like this thing. And so I'm like revising that essay to like focus on that thing. Um, so yeah, truth. Hmm. Hmm. Not sure about truth. But... Um, yeah, I mean, any, 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 like, essay or story, like, has, has a bunch of different, like, projects and aspirations, and, and I've found, like, the really scary and crazy thing about revision, and I think that'll be true of anyone in this room that's really spent some long, dark nights with a lot of materials, like, you can do a lot of, you can make a lot of different moves with the same piece. So to talk about like the truth of a piece is it can be a little slippery. So like the piece I originally wrote, uh, it's actually the final piece of the book. I tried to write it. It was about sort of like uh, a feeling of failure and loss and uh, an escape that was not true. And and the the version I'm sort of rewriting towards is more about like. Um, uh, how history repeats itself or something. You know, I mean, so... Uh, does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, the the essay you read last was to focus on something that is totally benign yeah. versus the, uh, you know, what you were saying about, like, in, in a movie, that this would be a very tense moment where you'd be learning or doing something, but instead you focus on something that is external outside of yourself and is benign. So, you you a writer, Will? Not a very good one. Yeah, but you try, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you see how some sometimes like pieces kind of take on a life of their own, and you're not in total control of what's happening? Like the sort of those first those final three scenes in this, like making the Manhattan's, Richard making fun of Americans, and then the ice cream cone thing. That just sort of like happened, and I I like I just had to I just had to be like okay. That I'll just roll with that, you know. Whereas there are other pieces where, like, you really have to do a tremendous amount of work. It's like a, it's like a, a rail car out of control, off, you, and you're not sure how to steer it, and ah, it's gonna not work out right. But sometimes it just it slots right in. Tony. So if, uh, if films and TV... Oh, no. Oh, shit. <laughs> this is going to be a tough question. Huh? Gosh. I mean, I'm, I'm crazy about Dexter Filkin's book. You know, I mean, I thought that was awesome. Um... I, re- I really liked, you know, I'm not a soldier, but I, I feel like I've been really drawn to a lot of the uh, the sort of uh, stories and memoirs and novels that are being produced by, like, um, veterans, you know? But it's not really about my experience, about my Middle East. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I think I think Phil Clay's, like, story collection that just came out, I don't know if any of you guys have read that. It's called The Redeployment, Redeployments, or The Redeployment, something like that. 
guy's got crazy talent. Um, funny, sad, really bright stuff. I mean, he's obviously read just a tremendous, all the right stuff, you know. But the thing I'm looking for from that book, and I sort of was looking for, I had a similar desire after the Yellow Birds book, that Kevin Powers book, which I think was another phenomenal, like, um, soldier book, was like, now what? You know, like, what's what's next? So, um, I don't know, that's probably a terrible answer to your question, but... Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there are probably going to be some killer books about Syria. I mean, I haven't read any good ones yet. Um, Yemen. I mean, all the Yemen books are pretty bad. Um, like, no no, one, no one's written a Saudi book that's any good. Oh, Dave, I haven't read the Dave Eggers Saudi book yet. I wonder if he has a piece in the New Statesman this week about, like, taking a scary taxi ride, <laughs> um, which I haven't finished yet. I started reading it on the way here. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think they haven't come out yet, Tony. Yeah, I mean, I I'm not sure about that, but I I think that's right. Could you remind me again how long have you been back here? Like ten minutes. No, Just I'm got off the plane. No, I'm kidding. No, we we uh we we moved to Venice in in, in uh, September. In September. Yeah. And you Ish. Yeah, it's. I mean, leaving a life like that is many convulsions, you know. So, what, well, the real question is, what was the mood in Beirut when you left? Drunk. <laughs> Drunk. Drunk. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty boozy place, you know. I had a friend from my Christian Science class years ago, and she was 80 when I met her. Whoa. And she was quite the traveler. Her husband worked for the State Department and whatnot, and they had lived in Beirut. So she, you know, but it's gone in and out of whatever, you know, whatever, uh, you know, evil, evil is going on. But she said, I mean, and then but prior to this spring situation, uh, which is, you know, of course, been ungodly, then it was supposed to be, again, the Paris of the Middle East. I think it's still a great place. I mean, we are, we're, Kelly and I are somewhat tortured by the fact that we left. Like, we have dear friends who are still making a great life there, and maybe I'll end on this, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a city that um, is very resilient and knows how to, like, party through catastrophe and, you know, has a really supple and wealthy um, diaspora. It's always pumping money in. It's got a very special relationship with Saudi Arabia, and they've just... New Orleans? There are some Lebanese in New Orleans. Yep. <laughs> you know, but yeah, so yeah, I see what you're saying. The party through the bad stuff thing. Yeah. yeah. I live um, in yeah. That was the folklore. That no, another great town. Yeah, it's it's um, you know they they've just opened uh, travel to back to Lebanon. You know, all the Gulf countries are like, yeah, go party there, Gulf, our Gulf people again. So, I think, I think, yeah, and we we miss it and. Um, you should go visit if you can. Yeah. Thanks a lot. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. 
You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.